1: who were the indo-europeans were they all conquering heroes aggressive patriarchal Kurgan horsemen sweeping aside the peaceful civilizations of old europe or weed-smoking drug dealers rolling across eurasia in a cannabis-induced haze or maybe slow-moving but inexorable farmers from anatolia these are just some of the many possibilities discussed in the scholarly literature but in 2012 a New York Times article announced that the problem had been solved by a team of innovative biologists applying computational tools to language change. In an article published in the journal Science, they claim to have found decisive support for the Anatolian hypothesis. In their book, The Indo-European Controversy, Facts and Fallacies in Historical Linguistics, Asia Perilsweig and Martin Lewis make the case that this conclusion is premature and based on unwarranted assumptions. In this interview... Asia and Martin talked to me about the history of the Indo-European homeland question, the problems they see in the science article, and the form that a good theory of Indo-European origins needs to take. I'm talking to Asia Peronsveig and Martin Lewis about their book, The Indo-European Controversy. Asia and Martin, many thanks for coming on to discuss this today. I'll start out with a question about you, because this is a book about Indo-European linguistics, but... Neither of you self-defines as an Indo-European linguist per se. Could you tell me a bit about your backgrounds?
2: I'm a linguist and mostly a syntactician, uh, but also interested in historical linguistics. So I'm coming at it from sort of a general linguistics background and point of view. uh,
0: Yes, I'm a historical geographer and I've long been interested in linguistic issues. And I was very glad to be able to team up with Asha so that I can sort of rely on her expertise and then add my own knowledge in history and geography, uh, world history in particular.
1: And how did this particular book come about? What prompted you to write it?
0: Well, it started with an article in the New York Times in November 2012, that was trumpeting a recent article in Science claiming that the Indo-European languages had originated in Anatolia and that that could be shown through phylogenetic and phylogeographical analysis. Uh, Ashi and I were quite skeptical, and we started looking into the issue, and we started writing a number of uh, blog posts And uh, that led from one thing to another. And before long, we had written so much, we thought, well, you know, maybe we can just turn all of this into a book. And so we did, although that took quite a bit of time. Mm. Is it fair to say that that this is an angry book, that there are elements
1: of anger in this book?
2: I wouldn't call it anger so much as we wanted to set the record straight and uh, introduce the general public to some of the controversies and uh, debates in historical linguistics but also to sort of uh, explain how things uh, have been done and how they should be done.
0: Uh, To be quite honest, I'd have to say that there's a little bit of anger on my part. I try to rein that anger in and uh, I hope I've done so successfully. But I have seen in my own discipline of geography uh, some very devastating occurrences through very similar approaches to knowledge, approaches that really denigrate the patient accumulation of, of information and knowledge, and hoping that a new scientific shortcut will enable us to reach the truth with, without having to do the hard work that historical linguists have done. So I saw this in geography, and now it seems to me like something very similar could possibly happen in historical linguistics.
1: Right. So the Anatolian approach to the origin of the Indo-European languages is one approach that you've mentioned. What is the other major candidate for Indo-European origins?
2: So there's a lot of different theories that have been developed uh, over the years, placing the Indo-European homeland anywhere from the Baltic to Northern India. But the two main candidates are the Anatolian uh, theory that you mentioned, and uh, the sort of the opposing candidate, if you will, is the so-called Steppe or kurgan theory that places the Indo-European homeland in the steppes north of the Black Sea and the Caucasus region. Uh, so one of the goals of our book was to compare the evidence For those two theories, because they're now sort of the main winners, so to speak, or the main competitors. Uh, So we wanted to compare the evidence for these theories and to show what evidence uh, supports one or the other of these two theories.
1: And do you think that in historical linguistics in general, there is a consensus or a near consensus?
2: I don't think so. Um, there are people who very strongly believe one uh, theory and other people who believe another theory. There is a very uh, strong uh, group of historical linguists who argue, for example, for the uh, Carpathian theory that places the homeland in the Carpathian Mountains in northern Balkans region. They are strong believers in the step theory. There are people who are very adamant about the Anatolian theory being right, so I don't think this is a question that has been resolved yet.
0: I would think, though, that overall the step theory has more proponents and more influential proponents. It's also much more widely accepted among archaeologists and now increasingly uh, historical geneticists who deal tangentially with uh, linguistic issues, but they still have a a role to play in the debate. You draw an
1: analogy in the introduction to the book with climate change and how that's reported in the media. Now, in popular publications, it's probably fair to say that it's generally the the mainstream view, the scientific consensus that's reported on climate change. Do you think it's the same in historical linguistics, or is there a difference here? Well, it seems
0: to us that there is quite a difference when this science article was published, we found that newspapers and magazines all over the world, not just in the United States and Britain, but in in Russia and
2: Italy, Italy
0: from many countries are saying, well, the issue has been solved. The, the debates have been terminated because now these scientists with their incredibly powerful computers uh, have been able to show us that the Anatolian theory is correct, which we just found sort of staggering, really, that this thesis that is rejected by so many scholars on such solid grounds would just be immediately trumpeted uh, by the media. So that's what really sort of set us off.
1: So this approach, which I think at various points in the book you call the the Gray-Atkinson approach after two of the authors on that science article, this approach you refer to as linguistic scientism. What is scientism and why do you think it's so appealing to the public imagination?
0: Well, scientism has uh, different definitions, but basically it's the misuse of scientific methods, taking a certain scientific method and treating it as if it created absolutely irrefutable knowledge. Science is a self-correcting program, but it's one that, unlike mathematics, does not give us absolute truth. And I think the authors of that article certainly recognize that. At one level but yet they treat it as if it did give us absolute proof now they claim that they have decisively solved the issue and we see that science can be misused in many different aspects and has been and it's something where I think we always have to be aware of science is so very powerful but yet I know its power can sometimes lead us astray if we give it too much credence
1: one thing that happened after this article was published in 2012 was that in 2013, the article was quietly updated on the science website. Could you tell us about the story behind that and what, if anything, it changes about their results?
2: Well, it appears that the authors of the article realized that they've mis-tabulated some data or put the wrong symbols in the in the, um input to their computer program, and they've redone their calculations and substituted the results. We only found out actually months later because some colleague of ours, a historical linguist, uh, mentioned this to us. So the results are quite different, but they still appear in the science website with the old publication date, as if these are the results that were there from the start. And I think going back to your question of anger, for me personally, that was the thing that provoked the most anger on my part, because basically they put a much later uh, work under the date of and and substituted the old results. Uh, So somebody who doesn't know this would just think that's what was there to begin with. But uh, it doesn't seem to be a kosher thing to do for me. (laughs)
1: Journals like Nature and Science, these very high prestige journals, do you think there's a more general problem with the way that they function these days, or are they still doing the job that they're supposed to be doing?
0: There have been a lot of complaints about the peer review process at the journals that you just mentioned. Uh, in fact, there have been some prominent scientists who've claimed that they refuse to publish in them because they emphasize spectacular stories or really stories that would be very newsworthy. At a deeper level, we think there's a big problem with the peer review process in that, well, it's, it's a bit opaque, of course, because peer review is blind. But from what we can gather, they are not going to historical linguists to vet these articles. And in fact, if you try to communicate to the editors of these journals, all they really want to hear about are criticisms of the mathematical models. They don't want to hear anything on uh, in the empirical record, They don't want to hear anything about the assumptions that the authors have used. All they really seem to care about is the math.
2: That was absolutely my experience because I actually published a co-authored response in Science to uh, another paper by one of the same authors that uh, also published this work in question. And when we submitted that response, the editors of Science basically wanted us to take out everything that had anything to do with linguistics and just have some problems that were raised with a mathematical model and with, with the statistics and the like. So the much bigger issues were really left outside of that critique.
1: Mm. Well, this monograph is very much a humanities monograph in that it starts with setting the context for the current debate um, and going into quite a lot of detail about what the Indo-European homeland question is and why it matters, and this covers quite a lot of ground. One point that I would like you to touch on, if you can, is uh, early 20th century scientific racism. Do you think that that has implications for people who are trying to make claims about the relationship between race and
0: language today? It potentially does. I think we're at a situation now where we don't have anything approaching the kind of systematic Uh, racism that was apparent in the early 20th century. But it's also important to remember how deep that racism was, that it was not just something found on the political right, that it was found uh, among Marxist scholars as well, all the way across the political spectrum. And it really colors the deeper history of the understanding of the field. And I found it rather surprisingly that some of my colleagues in history don't even want to hear about anything in historical linguistics because they have this idea that, oh, that was uh, destroyed by Nazi pseudo-scholars back in the day. And it's sort of hard even to reach some of these people. So I think it's very important to set out that broader context. But at the same time, I would not impute the motives of many of the people we're arguing against. I don't really see any signs of that kind of racism anywhere with the possible uh, exception of a few uh, journalists. But not the authors of the article? Uh, No, I don't think so. No.
2: I don't think so either, but I think there's an important lesson to be learned from those mistaken ways of thinking from the 1920s and 30s in the area of combining modern genetics and historical linguistics. So very often people take the genetic results or results of genetic studies as uh, valid uh, direct evidence for or against this or that theory in historical linguistics. But it's important to always remember and remind our audiences that genes and languages don't always completely match. They don't necessarily spread together. So uh, we have to keep the physical nature of human beings as, as in the genes separate from uh, linguistics and other cultural aspects.
0: Uh, yes, but at the same time, and I should say this is something that Ashia and I, I don't think, think we disagree, but we have a slightly different perspective on it, perhaps. But I do think it's very important to keep track of the recent genetic uh, research and use it sort of as a possible complement to a certain extent. And as, as Ashi says, yes, genes and languages don't necessarily flow together, but sometimes they do. And yeah. you can find some information. And it is interesting that the recent genetic studies that have come out since we finished the manuscript actually go very much in the direction of what we argued. In fact, some geneticists are now saying there was massive gene transfer that occurred during this time when Indo-European languages entered Europe. So we're, we're agnostic ultimately on the score, but we want to stay informed and uh, try to figure out these tricky linkages. Mm. I agree. (laughs) In general, it seems
1: as if the Indo-European origin question has been appropriated several times in the history of the field for ideological reasons. Do you think it's important for people working in the area today to take this history into account?
0: Oh, yes, absolutely. And it's uh, not just the systematic racism of the early periods, but it's also sort of reactions against that. Uh, We can look at a kind of a radical feminist appropriation of the work of Maria Gimbutas, an archaeologist who worked on these issues, and actually Gimbutas was partly responsible for that. Uh, But these people claimed that the pre-Indo-European residents of the Balkan Peninsula in particular, what they call Old Europe, was a absolutely peaceful, mostly matriarchal society that knew nothing of violence until these nasty, kurgan, proto-Indo-European-speaking warriors swept in and instituted hierarchy, male domination, and violence. And that is very much an ideological view of the past. And I think it blinds us to what uh, really uh, happened, and we have to be very careful. The temptations to go that direction are very strong, and that's one of the roles of scholars, I think, is to say, you know, wait a second, you've got to be really careful in what you say about the past. If
2: I may add one thing, a lot of the Indo-European controversy focuses on Europe, but we shouldn't forget that Indo-European languages are ultimately spoken in northern India and uh, parts of the Middle East. And in India in particular, there's a very strong ideological current that supports a theory or hypothesis that Indo-European languages originated in India And there's a lot of ideological battles that are raging now in India and that threaten to sweep the scholarship in that country, Mm. the Indo-European scholarship, away from sort of hard science and into this kind of ideological realm.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: Right, so let's move now to some of the details of the 2012 article that you're calling into question here. What's the main mechanism of diffusion that is assumed by these
0: authors? Well they assume the, the mechanism of what's called demic diffusion, which is just the slow increase of population, which leads to groups of people to move into new territory, whether unoccupied territory or territory occupied by another group, that's never really specified. So it begins by assuming that is really the only way language spreads, language is spread, and that's the only way human populations spread. So they are denying the possibility of migration, and this goes back to debates within the field of archaeology, where archaeologists had at one time attributed everything to migration, and then they decided they could attribute nothing to migration because they had gone too far. Uh, But it also rules out possibility of language spreading through uh, contact and cultural conversion and uh, many, many other processes through which uh, languages and peoples spread.
1: So do you think that archaeologists in the 20th century went too far in rejecting
0: migration? Oh, absolutely. And that's something now that uh, geneticists are showing that migration was omnipresent. You can find that by looking at at genetic traces. So for the Gray-Atkinson model,
1: are rapid population movements a problem?
2: They basically ruled out or not taken into account. So for example, we know that romance languages emerged after latin or in the process of latin spreading very quickly over the large territory as roman empire expanded but for Graham atkinson and their colleagues something like this is basically non-existent in human history so romance languages were basically a result of for them of latin gradually seeping away from rome and further and further away uh, in a very gradual and a much, much uh, longer time period. Uh The result of this denial of rapid migration is that for any group to get to its ultimate destination where we know that they now live or lived in historical period, a much longer period of time is needed. Uh It's assumed that people move maybe, I don't know, if five kilometers away from their birthplace on average, and there's no rapid migration beyond that. So what that means is that the ancestral languages are pushed further and further back into the past, including Proto-Indo-European, because everything was this really gradual uh, migration. So you can think of it, if you drop... A, a drop of oil in the water and, and wait for that oil to be completely sort of diffused through the water. It takes a very long time. But if we are to uh, shake the glass, then uh, the process will happen much faster. So they basically assume that there was no such shaking of the glass in, in the population.
1: But you would say that uh, in the history of the Indo-European expansion, the glass was shaken.
2: Oh, absolutely. We know that for more recent, uh, for a historical period with the example of Latin, for example, uh, we know that Ireland, for example, was very rapidly populated by uh, the Norsemen on the Gray-Atkinson model. They basically floated in the direction of Iceland for like 300 <laughs> years, was it? you know, just sitting on boats, gradually being blown in that direction or something like that, because that's what their model assumed. We know that particularly in prehistoric period or in early historical period, people often migrated along rivers, and rivers propelled migration. This is something that the gray atkinson model completely disregards. It puts outside the frame, and I'll turn to Martin to talk yeah. a little more about the geographical aspect to this. Well,
0: one thing that's very interesting is they recognize that this is a problem, but they think it's trivial. So they say, well, our model can't handle the rapid Spread of languages like Latin, but that's so rare that we really don't have to worry about it. But actually, it's not really rare at all. Uh, There are many different kind of mechanisms that can lead to uh, the rapid spread of a a language. A lot of evidence suggests that the rapid spread of Slavic into the Balkans in the post-Roman period had to do with Slavic groups uh, moving in and then bringing other peoples into their culture in a very rapid way. So this was a very chaotic region after Germanic tribes, had, had, uh, many of them had migrated, and uh, there was a power vacuum, and people could move into that, and as long as they could bring other people into their culture, you could have this, this very rapid linguistic transformation. And, and again, none of that is, is or can be found in the Gray-Atkinson model. It simply doesn't allow that kind of complexity. So, as you mentioned the geography, what sort of assumptions
1: do Gray-Atkinson et al make about the geographical structure of the space that the Indo-Europeans are expanding into?
0: Well, it's very interesting. They claim it is a content-rich model, but the only thing they differentiate is land and water. And they have several different versions of their model, which treat movement over water at different rates. Uh, one is a sailor model, which allows relatively somewhat more rapid movement. But in actuality, it all depends on uh, whether what kind of technology people have. So a waterway can be a tremendous barrier when people don't have boats or it can be a very easy conduit if they do have good boats. And so over historical times, that changes. But we also have to take into account mountain ranges, rivers, as Asha mentioned, or even soil types. There's a lot of evidence that indicates that the first agriculturalists who moved into Central Europe, now Gray and Atkinson would think these were Indo-European speaking peoples. Uh, Asha and I have very much doubt that uh, but this early neolithic movement into europe a lot of these people were looking for a certain kind of soil called loose it's a easily worked fertile friable soil and they avoided other areas so the actual movement is not just this you know, movement over a a blank landscape or what geographers used to call an isotropic plane featureless in all directions instead you have these very real features uh, that really influence where people go, where they don't go, and how they move when they do, when they do transfer location.
2: One of the outcomes of disregarding those geographical features is that in the resulting model, uh, small islands, uh, or even larger islands in some cases are either not populated by Indo-European speakers at all, ever, uh, <laughs> or they, uh, only saw Indo-European first Indo-European settlers in very recent history, uh, essentially because islands being surrounded by water are harder, are very hard in this model to get to. Uh, and we know that from historical record in many cases that that was not the case with uh, places like Sardinia, for example, or Crete, uh, even Iceland was populated much uh, earlier than what they uh, suggest, and other islands as well.
1: What about Moldova?
2: <laughs> that's a great place, but uh, they don't uh, show it as Indo-European speaking uh, uh, up to 1974, and that's completely not true. The language in Moldova, the main language, is uh, an Indo-European language, actually quite similar to Romanian, and many people believe it's pretty much the same language, uh, the distinction being purely sort of geopolitical rather than linguistic.
0: Now, we were really mystified why they had left Moldova off that map, and we solved the problem by looking at how they constructed the model. They begin with an input map, or that, at least that's one of the inputs, that shows modern Indo-European languages, and they had just neglected to show Moldova and left it out, and left it blank as if it were non-Indo-European speaking. So they have a map of contemporary languages, which shows Moldova's non-Indo-European speaking, and lo and behold, then, uh, their animated map showing the spread of Indo-European uh, leaves it out as well, which is no surprise. There's one theory that you mention of
1: Indo-European origins, of the spread of the Indo-European language family, that I found quite exciting. So I would appreciate if you could tell me, was the spread of the Indo-European family really fueled by cannabis? <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, no, I don't think so. I honestly doesn't think so either. I found that a very amusing view. It was uh, written by an anthropological blogger, maybe a little bit tongue-in-cheek. Uh, but the reason why we wrote that is to show that you can come up with a huge variety of these sorts of theories depending on the information you want to uh, emphasize. And it's been done many different times, where the Indo-Europeans can become the the great heroic adventurers of the uh, early twentieth century racial theories, or the uh, nasty marauders of the uh, uh, Gimbutas school of feminist archaeology, or the plotting stay-at-home farmers who never move more than five kilometers in the Gray Atkinson model. So we thought, well, this is kind of intriguing. Uh, let's just pretend that instead it was a drug fueled spread, which is sort of bizarre, but it's not. I mean, there are some some real things here. Uh, cannabis was probably domesticated and first used for its psychoactive properties by well, not the Proto Indo Europeans were probably the Proto Indo Iranians. It originated in Central Asia. There were a lot of other drugs. Taoma or Soma that's found in the Rig Veda and the Investa was uh, another one of these drugs. And uh, we find that even among, uh, say, the Pashtun people of of Afghanistan until very recently, their Sufi mendicants who would make peace between different warring tribes uh, were not only using large amounts of uh, cannabis, they were also uh, taking some much more powerful drugs like Datura. So there's a whole drug prehistory that we often don't talk about, but some archaeologists, particularly and late share it, really show how important that is in world history. So I, we thought it would be interesting to throw it in there. So the bigger question,
1: the bigger picture question, I guess, is what constitutes a good theory of Indo-European origins? What are your criteria for that?
2: I think ultimately it has to be a theory that's based on the linguistic evidence because it is a linguistic question. We are uh, questioning where and when a particular language was spoken. Uh, we can glean some evidence from the distribution of soil types or the spread of marijuana or <laughs> uh from genetic evidence of people or even genetic evidence of based on other species in the spread of different species archaeological evidence evidence of course domestication so we can reconstruct a lot about the actual people but again it is a linguistic question so we have to have evidence that's based at least largely on uh, linguistic types of evidence.
0: Yeah, that's one of the overriding theses of the book, I think, is the notion that non-linguistic theories of language are going to lead us astray. They've been attempted uh, many times, but they just don't work. And I say that as a non-linguist, but my response to that is to work with linguists. I don't have the expertise, but I recognize that you all do, and that you've been developing those techniques for a long time, and there's this incredibly rich corpus of material on historical linguistics. The Gray-Atkinson model basically says it's all, it's all worthless, because if, if it doesn't fit with their model, then what does it show? It shows nothing. So we're really interested in conserving and preserving that tradition, but also opening it up to new methods. So let's talk in a bit more
1: detail about that linguistic evidence, then, some of the linguistic Issues that arise. What do you think are the main linguistic problems with the Gray Atkinson model?
2: I think one of the overarching problems of their model, and it's very common to historical linguistics, particularly the computational historical linguistics, is only looking at words and basically, in effect, equating language with words. And as linguists, we know that words are the least interesting part. Of language and the least reviewing part or least reliable part of language. If we want to study um, language history, language contacts, what contemporary languages are like, we have to look a lot beyond just words. And I think maybe part of the appeal of the Gray Atkinson model for the general public and for a lot of the press uh, that trumpeted this project was exactly in that people tend to equate languages with just the words, and it's a bad assumption that I think as linguists we really have to work to challenge in other scholars that come from other fields like archaeology and want to tackle some of these historical linguistic issues, but also uh, with respect to the general public. I think it's the biggest misconception about language or, or assumption that people make even sometimes without realizing it. Uh, that we need to challenge.
0: And there are some computational linguists who are now working on, with materials beyond the vocabulary, trying to use uh, computational methods for syntax. And we think that has an awful lot of promise. So it's not that we're against all computational linguistics, but we are against its uh, simplistic use, particularly by non-linguists.
1: Right. Do you think linguistics has a bit of a PR problem in that regard then? Do you think we could be doing more or better to communicate the fact that languages are not just lists of words to the general public? Oh,
2: absolutely. I think at some point, linguistics as a field dropped the ball on its PR side of uh, its enterprise. And as a result, we really uh, have a general public that is either uninformed or badly misinformed. And I'm afraid that a lot of the Teaching that goes uh, in in K-12 schools here in the States or in comparable education elsewhere uh, actually only makes matters worse by misinforming students about language rather than revealing the the real truths about language. And we definitely need to do more about this. I actually recently traveled in Italy, and while on the train, I picked a railway company's brochure, And there was an article there on Dante with words like uh, uh, possessive adjectives and nouns and connotation. And I was very excited to see that in such a general publication, but I thought there's not a chance that a comparable publication here in the States would ever have an article (laughs) that much linguistics in it. I mean, of course, it was written for general public, but, but still it had some contentful things to say. Uh, whereas in the United States, I think a lot of the popular press really dumbs down a lot of the real discoveries and, and misinforms the public about them. And I think we really need to do something about that as linguists.
1: I think the same holds for the UK as well. So do you think that one of the keys then is to engage more with school-level education?
2: Oh, absolutely. I think it's really important. And there's some discussions now among linguists about the need to do so, but there's a lot of disagreements about how it's to be done. And also there's a lot of pushback from the education folks who just say, oh, well, what we're doing is just, just great and we don't need to make any changes. But I, I think we really need to do more with education in K-12 schools, but also with educating the grown-up public. And uh, Martin and I have been doing that um, by teaching some continuing studies courses uh, linguistically themed, and and challenging some of these misconceptions and uh, informing the general public about what what's happening.
0: I'd also uh, like to see linguists writing more books, particularly books that cross over between a specialist audience and a general audience. And I say that as a, uh, I teach in a history department, and history is very much a book-driven discipline, and it has its disadvantages. So at least books, especially trade books, can reach a broader audience, whereas the specialist publications in the periodical literature that linguists rely on and their careers rely on, yeah, they're wonderful, but I'd just like to see a little more public outreach, I guess. Mm.
1: Going back a bit to the, uh, to the Gray and Atkinson approach, let's talk about borrowed words. Does the approach take any steps to eliminate borrowed words?
2: Well, they say in all their published work that they do eliminate borrowings from consideration. But when we look at the results, we find that some of the results from the model look very suspicious given what we know as linguists. And they look suspicious because they show too much linkage between languages that borrowed heavily from each other. So we think that somewhere along the line, not all the borrowings have been taken out of consideration, and that's what biased the the ultimate results of their
1: model. What about dating, then? It's often said that, or sometimes said, that linguists don't do dates. Do you think that's right?
2: Uh, I don't think so. I think linguists do quite a bit with dates, particularly given how dateless our input is. But the, the way that they work with dates is, is also a bit suspicious, because... Uh, some of the dates that they use as input, so we, they basically put in some of the dates and then calculate the others with respect to the input dates. Some of these input dates are a bit suspicious, such as the split of Romanian away from other Romance languages. That that seems to have been misdated. So if they use bad data uh, as input, of course, the output is not correct either.
0: Now they take particular... Mm-hmm. Dates that we know from history, like the Strasbourg Oaths, dealing with the differentiation of the romance languages, which is fine at the beginning. But the problem is that's it's much more complicated than they allow. And it's not like you can just take this one document in this one date and say, aha, at this time we have the separation. It's a much more complicated process. So we have some quite a few suspicions about the way they calibrate their dates.
2: Besides the issues with calibration, I think a bigger part of the problem comes from this idea that language is spread by diffusion, as we uh, were saying earlier. So, of course, that pushes all the older dates to be further in the past. And ultimately, it brings the date for Proto-Indo-European in the general chronological domain of the Anatolian theory. And I think part of their proof their proof. Anatolian theory comes from those dates that place Proto-Indo-European about 3,000 years earlier than the step hypothesis would have them.
1: So looking at languages for which we do know quite a bit about the dating of the split, Mm -hmm. are there particular languages that come out really drastically wrong in the Gray-Atkinson model?
2: Well, the Romani is really a a big uh, gap. (laughs) Uh, um, Romani is uh, a language of the Roma, the Gypsies. And as they uh, migrated from northern India to uh, eastern Europe, in particular the Balkans, um, they picked a lot of words from other languages, from Persian, from Greek, Armenian, so uh, different uh, languages that they lived side by side with. And having that much borrowing makes Romani very different from its relatives. And because it looks different in this model that only relies on words, it makes its separation much earlier than it actually did happen. We know because of linguistic evidence that they could not have left uh, northern India uh, earlier than about a thousand years ago. Well, Gray and Atkinson theory places them, what, 3,500 years ago, so by several millennia off off the mark, so that's a really good example.
0: And what about Hittite? Where does Hittite fit into the picture? Well, H- Hittite's a, sort of a crucial uh, issue because, of course, it was spoken in Anatolia, and it's also quite different from other Indo-European languages. I mean, some scholars would talk about an Indo-Hittite family with a uh, sort of separate branch. So that is one of the things that uh, led many people to this sort of uh, Anatolian model. But it's very interesting to look at uh, Hittite history because actually most of the people under the Hittite empire did not speak the uh, Hittite language, what they called uh, Nessali or Nessite. Instead, they spoke languages like uh, Hattian, uh, which is a non-Indo-European language. Hurrian was spoken in the region and a number of others. And all of the Hittite specialists believed that the Hittites came in from the outside, conquered the indigenous people and established rule over them uh, and used their language as the main administrative and official language alongside all the other languages that were spoken around them, uh, which sort of is a very common occurrence if we were to accept the gray atkinson view of the hittites would have to have a bizarre situation where non-indo-european speakers moved into the region but yet were a subservient underclass but yet were able to name the country after themselves because the term hittite comes not from the what we call the hittites but rather the hackians this Sort of subservient peasant population that the Hittites ruled over. So it's a, a fascinating case, and I think that alone really would invalidate the um, much of the Gray Atkinson approach. Okay, so we've seen that there are a lot of
1: certainly a lot of oversimplifications in the Gray Atkinson model. Do you think anyone would dispute that? Do you think the authors themselves would dispute that there are oversimplifications in this model?
2: Well, I think they would dispute the over part of that uh, <laughs> statement. So they, they certainly uh, accept that there are simplifications, and they say, well, to do science, you have to simplify, you have to separate different issues and control for different factors, which is absolutely true. We agree with that. But we think that there's way too many oversimplifications, there's way too much of setting aside things that are well established from historical record or from historical linguistics or from archaeology. And when you set so much aside and make assumptions that are so wrong and put in data that has so many gaps in it or so many problems in it, of course, the results can not be really on the
0: right track. Right. It's one thing when a simplification takes something that is generally true and just makes it more simple. And another when it posits something that is empirically demonstrably incorrect. And that's what we would argue for a number of their assumptions, like the demic diffusion assumption, for example.
1: Right. And how would you evaluate the way that they have responded to criticisms?
0: Well, uh, not very well. Uh, They did respond to some of our uh, blog postings, and of course, they were not happy, as uh, would be expected. But their basic line is that, look, in science, there's going to be mistakes, but Over time, as we refine our model, these mistakes will be eliminated and you're way too harsh and uh, everything that we say can't be completely uh, correct. And that's just how science works. But when you look, especially at the animated map uh, on the companion website, which advertises itself as watch the unfolding of the Indo-European languages, when you actually go through that frame by frame, which we did, and look at both the spread of Indo-European as a whole and the spread of the different branches, nothing matches what we know from the empirical record. I mean, we can't really find anything that works well. So when you get that level of error, you're not talking about simplifications. You're just talking about something that is fundamentally wrong, at least in our view.
1: Right, let's move on to talking about something that is part of the traditional approach to the Indo European origin question, which is linguistic paleontology. Could you tell us what that is?
2: Linguistic paleontology is basically reconstructing, using methods of historical linguistics, some of the vocabulary of these ancestral languages that are no longer spoken and that have no written records, like Proto Indo European. And then Based on that reconstructed vocabulary, looking for evidence in archaeological or historical record of where speakers who had such words could have lived. So, for example, if we find words for banana and rice and coconut, we're going to place the speakers of this ancestral language in a very different area from if we find uh, words like oak and birch and horse and the like. So in the case of Proto-Indo-European, some of the early work focused on uh, reconstructing names of different tree species, but that's a very problematic area, as we discuss in the book, because different trees grow in overlapping, yet not necessarily matching uh, areas, and can give you quite contradictory evidence. And much more solid evidence comes from uh, words for horses and wheeled vehicles, part of wheels and other parts of wheeled vehicles, Uh, by being able to reconstruct uh, words for these sorts of things for Proto-Indo-European or its early daughters, and to show that they are not borrowings across the different Indo-European branches. That provides a very strong argument that Proto-Indo-European speakers lived somewhere where they were familiar with horses, and horses actually at that time period limits us pretty well to the steppe zone, and also they were possibly the inventors, but certainly the users of wheels and carts or some sort of vehicles like that. So we can look at these in the archaeological uh, record and see when evidence of horse use and wheel use appears in the archaeological uh, record, and that both limits the time and the place where proto Indo-European would have been spoken.
1: Right, but isn't there a potential problem with semantic shift here? So, to take an example that Paul Haggerty has used, the word for a mouse, the small creature, yeah. um, has generally acquired the secondary meaning, or even primary meaning, I guess, in the modern culture of... Um, of the thing that we use to operate our computers with a button uh, and such like. And that's happened seemingly in parallel across the languages. Couldn't something like that have happened with words for wheel?
2: It could have happened if we can show that the different descendants of Proto-Indo-European were in contact. Otherwise, it's rather surprising that they would have words that we can show linguistically to be native developments in those languages, particularly Tokarian is the one that comes to mind because the speakers of Tokarian, or Proto-Tokarian lived so far away, separated by mountain ranges and uh, thousands of miles from other Indo-European speakers. And as far as we can tell, never in contact with them once they made that migration. To their uh, lands in western China, it's very surprising to find uh, words that seem so native, yet uh, acquired this exact same new technological meaning.
0: Sure, right. you know, in the modern world, we're all connected, and we all know that. But it simply wasn't the case. And as Ashi just said, the Tokai has lived in what is now Xinjiang, China, on the other side of the Tianshan Mountains, which are up over twenty thousand feet of elevation. So there's no evidence that they maintained contact, but yet they have these, these uh, uh, cognate words, and so they certainly don't seem to have been borrowed.
1: It could be suggested
0: that under the standard story of
1: Indo-European origins, or at least under the, the dominant implementation of the step theory, the expansion of the families is rather an extraordinary development. Do you think that
0: would be a fair assessment? I would say so. Uh, there are certainly other language families that have had sort of similar extraordinary uh, spreads and development. But Indo-European is, the, by a pretty good margin, the largest language family in terms of total number of speakers. So yes, I would say so. But does it postulate,
1: do we require any mechanisms for Indo-European that are specific to Indo-European?
2: Uh, I don't think so. We're talking about spread that's partially due to actual people migrating, but also in part due to uh, cultural assimilation and uh, language contact uh, between Indo-European and uh, presumably non-Indo-European speakers. We talk about rapid migration, which is very common in the kind of open grassland areas that the steppes are. Turkic languages are another family that spread very rapidly in the same Eurasian steppes. But the other groups that spread as well, the Antus spread in Africa, and we can talk about other groups uh, on other continents. And there's perhaps something special about Eurasian steppes that they're so large and such a huge uh, belt that goes along parallel to the equator that promoted that kind of spread the way that Diamond talks about in his Germs and Steel uh, uh, book. Um, so, if the Eurasian steps are indeed special in the geographical sense, historical geographical sense, then it, there's nothing special about the Indo European spread as such.
0: There's a very interesting analogy from North America, which was the Uto Aztecan speaking Comanche Indians who took up pastoralism in a very effective way and created a Uh, Well, what one historian uh, has called the Comanche Empire. It wasn't really an empire, but it was a large raiding and trading sphere across the southern plains down into central Mexico. And the evidence suggests that the Comanche language was spreading very rapidly. People learned it as a a trade language. They learned it to deal with these overbearing military-mounted warriors. But had history be able to play itself out in such a way that the United States did not conquer and subdue the Comanches. We may have ended up with a, a very large area. of was Comanche speaking uh, in time of what probably differentiated in several other languages. And I find that such a fascinating story because in the early 20th century, uh, many of the proponents of, uh, of Indo-European studies saw the Anglo-Saxon settlers in the United States have very much like these early Indo-Europeans where we think very much, it was much more the case of groups like the Comanche who are more similar. Powerful, horse-riding, pastoral peoples whose language was spreading.
1: Right. A question that's specifically for you, Martin. You seem a little bit upset about what's happened to your discipline, geography in, in the United States. Do you think that... First of all, could you, could you tell us a bit about that? And, and second, do you think that, that historical
0: linguistics is in danger of, of having the same thing happen? Well, I hope it's not in danger of having the same thing happen, but the potential is there. Uh, geography is very poorly represented in the United States, particularly at private schools. It's a very odd situation where most public universities have geography departments, but the big private schools, Stanford, where I teach, Harvard, Yale, uh, Princeton, down the line, none of these schools have uh, geography departments anymore. They were eliminated after World War II. And it's a complicated story. There are many factors at play. One thing that I think was crucial was that geographers uh, were searching for a unifying sort of scientific principle. In the ni- early 1900s, it was environmental determinism, the notion that the environment is going to determine culture, thought, everything else. Uh, that was abandoned in the 30s. Uh, and then in the uh, 50s, especially in the 1960s, geographers turned to what they call the quantitative revolution, where they believed that you could use spatial statistics to turn geography into a positive science, that it could become uh, much more like economics or even eventually like physics. You have these spatial laws that determined where everything took place. And when this happened, geographers quit looking at the great complexity of the world. They quit looking at the intersection of human culture and physical environment. And they just looked at where things were and analyzed that statistically. And it didn't really go anywhere. It gave us some good techniques, but the big theories that were postulated, central place theory, pretended that it could determine where every city was located based on retail marketing. And it just didn't pan out. And geographers then kept trying to find something new. So they turn to Marxist geography or postmodernist geography or various other sort of trendy approaches, and it sort of lost its way. So I, I still love geography. I think it's an absolutely wonderful field, but it is a faint shadow of what it should be in the United States, at least. It's a little bit better situation in the UK and in many other countries. Uh, but even there, I don't think geography is its not nearly as strong as history, for example. I think rightfully it should be. Back in the days of Alexander von Humboldt, geography was uh, considered uh, by some the queen of the sciences. Well, nothing like that anymore.
1: So, Asha, do you have any ideas about what we should be doing to prevent the same thing from happening in linguistics?
2: I think uh, as far as historical linguistics goes, the, the danger is very real that it would actually sort of dismantle itself by uh, 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 throwing out a lot of the uh, knowledge that has been accumulated over the last uh, couple of centuries. And by making these oversimplifications, it will produce results that are so far away from um, reality, even observable reality, that people would just say, well, this is nonsense. We no longer need this, uh, quite justly. So I think the danger is really there. And what we should be doing is, well, part of it is actually setting the record straight and making sure that good work is promoted and bad work is not. And uh, I think it's a broader issue with linguistics as we've been discussing earlier. We really need to get our PR campaign <laughs> and uh, an outreach campaign uh, uh, more in order than it is now.
1: So you both run popular blogs in your areas, and in the book, you actually make reference a fair few times to online material or other blogs. That, I think, is quite unusual in a modern humanities context. Do you think we're seeing here the beginning of some kind of major shift in research dissemination and and the way that the research debate is going to be carried out?
0: Well, I I hope so. Uh, I think we all realize the problems with blogs, and we don't want them to replace standard methods of the dissemination of information, but we do think that they can very much complement journal articles, books, and the like. There is something to be said for gatekeepers, but on the other hand, uh, gatekeepers can sometimes be a little bit overactive. Those gates can be captured by interested parties as well. So I am a bit of, uh, I'm I'm not a a total um, anarchist when it comes to knowledge, but I have—I guess I have some tendencies in that direction. I like to see the, the open spread of information that you get with blogs. I like to see things that are not copyright protected. I do a lot of mapping myself, and I try to make my maps as openly available to uh, anyone as possible. I think there's a lot to be said for that. So yes, uh, th- it's not going to be a replacement, but I think it can really be helpful.
2: And in my experience, some of the blogs provide information or uh, discussion that is as solid, if not more so, than uh, sort of traditional peer-reviewed conferences or publications. Uh, but they're also a medium to do this kind of outreach, to reach to a broader mm-hmm. public that might not necessarily want to go and invest in an expensive book, monograph, and at least linguistic publications are uh, quite frightfully expensive but making this uh, information accessible and very often uh, good readers they keep us honest and keep us on our toes so i really appreciate what uh, this kind of blogging has allowed me to do
1: so to sum up then with the gray and atkinson approach would you say that there's any hope for it should we be continuing to do these bayesian phylogenetic things or should we just throw the whole thing out
0: Well, I wouldn't say we should throw everything out, but I think that they should always be assessed very carefully against the empirical record. And I think their assumptions should be questioned. And I think the authors who want to go in that direction should be taking into account the criticisms that people like Ashia and I are giving them and not just saying, ah, you're old fashioned, you know, buddy duddies conventional historical linguistics. We got to move beyond that. Uh, And so I think I imagine there are people across that continuum in in the field. I think there's some good work is being done, but it needs to have this kind of critique to to stay honest.
1: Okay, well, we're running a little short on time. Um, So I'll ask you a question that I ask everyone because it's always interesting to hear the answer. What are the two of you planning to work on next, either together or individually? Uh, At
2: the moment, I'm actually working on second edition of my uh, textbook, also published by Cambridge University Press, called Languages of the World. So hopefully that will come out maybe uh, as early as uh, next year. I'm also doing some historical linguistics work on a more recent uh, language, more uh, recent historical period. I'm doing some work on Yiddish and its development in Eastern Europe. And, Martin, do you want to add that? Well, I'm also
0: uh, rewriting a textbook. I'm a co-author of a world geography textbook that takes up way too much of my time. Uh, Other than that, I'm concentrating on blogging for the time being. I do like to jump around. Uh, For example, last couple of weeks, I've written extensively on the southern part of the Arabian Peninsula, and I've looked at political issues there, but also linguistic issues. The modern uh, South Arabian languages are spoken they a very interesting area where Oman and Yemen come together. There's a movement on the Yemen side of the border for autonomy. Some people are even talking about independence. These are areas with a unique climate, landforms, vegetation uh, that are often overlooked. So I really like to find obscure parts of the world that have important things to tell us, delve into them a bit, make some maps, and try to make that available for the general public. Uh, So if anyone's interested in uh, the modern uh, South Arabian languages, um, I'd love to hear your comments on a a little bit that I've written about them over the last couple of weeks.
2: And as far as uh, joint work together, uh, we'll we'll see what reaction the book provokes and uh, see from there what challenges uh, we have to address.
1: Absolutely. Because it's certainly not the last word, right? Absolutely (laughs) not. Yes, we hope it provokes a healthy discussion. Well, it's probably going to have to be the last word from us because we're out of time, uh, but thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure to discuss this with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. I've been talking to Asia Perlzweig and Martin Lewis of Stanford University about their book, The Indo-European Controversy, Facts and Fallacies in Historical Linguistics. This is George Walton for New Books in Language saying thank you for listening.